Welcome to Women Leading in Cannabis. I'm your host, Kira Reed. Thank you for joining us. Our guests today are Kelly Perez and Courtney Mathis of Cannabis Doing Good. Welcome to the show, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Kelly is the CEO and co-founder of Kind Colorado and president co-founder of Cannabis Doing Good and co-founder executive director for the Cannabis Impact Fund. This first-of-its-kind effort joins national anti-racism efforts and puts into action cannabis partnerships to support equity, justice, positive community impact, and environmental sustainability to help shift the cannabis narrative from the war on drugs to a cultural sea change where opportunities are equitable, policy is just, communities benefit, and cannabis is a circular economic practice. Kelly is an adjunct professor at the University of Denver and works to continuously improve local, state, and national policy to benefit the community. Courtney Mathis is co-founder and CEO of Cannabis Doing Good, president and co-founder of Kind Colorado, and co-executive director founder of the Cannabis Impact Fund, exclusively focused on racial justice in cannabis for the next year. She has 15 years of experience creating opportunities for businesses, communities, and nonprofit brands to collaborate for mutual benefit. Kelly and Courtney have had their work featured in Forbes, ABC News, uh, Canada's The Star, Marijuana Business Magazine, Marijuana Moment, Pacific Standard, Colorado Public Radio, the Nonprofit Quarterly, CBS Local, and many other cannabis trade magazines. Additionally, they were featured in Green Entrepreneur as one of the top 100 cannabis companies in the country. Welcome and wonderful to have you both here today. Thank you so much. When you hear all that, you're like, wow, that's so busy. We're busy. I know. I really, I, I like to read all of the bios and the accolades because I, I don't think that women really celebrate their successes enough. So I always enjoy really reading off the long bios. All right, ladies. So let's start at the beginning. How did you both find yourselves working in the cannabis industry? How did you find each other and where did your partnership start? Kelly, I'll let you go first. Yeah. So I was policy advisor for Governor Hickenlooper in Colorado, where the first cannabis regulated industry was crafted for adult use. And my area, I was really there for to create the Office of Early Childhood, which we did and some other things, but human services, health and human services is really my area. And I could see a great process around Amendment 64, the people's effort to get cannabis legalized, but there wasn't anything after that. So creating the first Office of Marijuana Coordination and really advocating for we're doing this, whether or not the governor was behind it, which he wasn't very enthusiastic. And I really only cared about the war on drugs and mass incarceration in terms of the policy, but I didn't see it there. And I hadn't been part of crafting it because I came from a different space. So thinking about it, looking through the implementing legislation, saying, oh, my gosh, this is municipalities. This is going to be people. This is going to be people I know impacted in community. And I don't see anything in here for their benefit. 
So I had this idea to figure out a way that there could be mutual benefit between cannabis companies and uh, communities, especially community members working on health. So I was talking about this crazy thing. Courtney was, we didn't know each other, and she was talking about this crazy thing, trying to figure out how could cannabis businesses benefit uh, justice-seeking and other amazing nonprofits. And we were introduced through somebody named what, um, Rich Mayo, which that's actually his name. White is not his middle name. That's his actual name. And he is like the godfather of some amazing nonprofit work. And he said, you know what? I've been hearing these two interesting ladies talk about some crazy things. I think I ought to introduce them. So we'd never met before working together. And now we've been in business for six years. Courtney, what do you want to add to that? Yeah, I just think it's it's always so interesting to hear people's stories about how they get started, because certainly this is true in cannabis. But you know, my mentor always says life is like a lattice, not a ladder. And it's because so many of us in the cannabis space come from other walks of life. And in a previous life, I was actually a marine, a marine biology researcher and worked in the Gulf of Mexico with Atlantic bottlenose dolphins and in the Puget Sound with the southern resident orcas there. And interestingly enough, my claim to fame in the environmental world is that um, the research that we did in the Puget Sound got the, re- the southern resident orcas listed as threatened under the ECA which was the Endangered Species Act, which was a really major win. But then after that, of course, I um, had a long career in nonprofit consulting, which Kelly alluded to, and and just really wanted to see more collaborations between what were two uh, very vulnerable sectors, which was cannabis and nonprofit. And so, yeah, Kelly and I met. We did not know each other. We basically started our business overnight, um, drafted our logo with pen and paper, on a conference table um, and crafted our mission a couple of days later. And we're, we're still here six years later. Um, and it's just a crazy testament, I think, to our resiliency and patience, not only with the nonprofit sector, but also, also just with the time and getting to know one another and becoming um, really dear friends and very close business partners. Okay, you both completely left out some incredible stuff from your bios. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so impressive. Um, and you know how many girls growing up, their dream is to swim with dolphins and you got to do it, Courtney. That's really cool. <laughs> okay. So tell us about Cannabis Doing Good. Why did you start it? What is your mission and how can our listeners support it? Yeah. So Cannabis Doing Good, you know, Kind Colorado six years ago really started as a consultancy to help develop social responsibility programs for the cannabis industry. And we developed the cannabis social responsibility framework because social responsibility in cannabis is specific and nuanced given our history with the drug war, meaning that there's always going, was always going to be a seed of racial justice that fueled our desire to help cannabis companies interact with communities. And doing consulting is meaningful. And it allowed us to get a national stage somewhat quickly. We were able to work with companies across the country. We were consulting with some municipalities, even Canada, but really determined that this one-on-one with clients was, while meaningful to the business and to the communities they were in, was not reaching the level of magnitude when we talk about impact that we really hoped. Um, So we decided to develop Cannabis Doing Good a few years ago. And Cannabis Doing Good really aimed to help leverage the cannabis sector as an economic driver for social good. And what that means is really working to use cannabis businesses 
to lead in racial justice, to create in sustainability, to develop um, community engagement plans that were meaningful and long lasting, and to create this sort of ecosystem of doing good with the business, with the community, with the consumer. We started Cannabis Doing Good really just trying to test the market to say, is there a need, a want, and a desire for a purpose-driven industry? So the first thing we did was throw an event. We called them Parties with a Purpose. And we went to a local brewery. We partnered with a local land trust and invited, you know, 60% of the folks we invited were cannabis and 40% of them were community or nonprofit leaders. The goal in that was was multiple, um, had multiple levels. First of all, giving cannabis giving to nonprofits is incredibly challenging. It's part of the reason we've been able to do the work we've been doing for so long, unfortunately, is that the cannabis sector is not friendly, um, has not historically been friendly to cannabis. And also we wanted to create more opportunities for community leaders and for cannabis businesses to get to know one another so that some of these partnerships that we talk about when we talk about CSR, social responsibility, happens organically. So we just put an invite out and said, come to this, come to this brewery, have a drink, meet with other purpose-driven cannabis businesses, meet with other purpose-driven community leaders, and let's raise money for a land trust. We expected maybe 50 people to show up and 150 people showed up. And we just sort of looked around the room and thought, holy smokes, this is amazing. We had no idea there'd be such an interest in this purpose-driven movement, this purpose-driven community. And of course, we had live music and we had food and mala making and we tried to make it fun. But it was so successful, we started doing them everywhere. So we started partnering with MJ Biz to do them in Vegas. We partnered with M4MM to do them in St. Louis. Uh, we went on to New Orleans. We were doing them, of course, quarterly and regularly in Denver, Colorado, which is where we're based. Um, and that, that really, uh, we did those over the course of a year and it was all just to test the market, right. To build a movement around this sort of purpose-driven activated cannabis sector. And what we heard from the community and from the cannabis sector basically was like, hell yes, we want this to exist. We want more resources. We want more community connections. We want to do better. We want to know better so we can do better. Um, Kelly, I'll let you take it from there. That's kind of our original origin just throw in there that by doing these things, you're exceeding, you know, meeting and exceeding regulatory requirements. You're lowering your employees' turnover rates. You're benefiting that land trust she was talking about. Well, that was in a community where cannabis was very densely located based on zoning, where community members had no say or influence on what happened. And so then it's kind of a little bit of a hostile environment. So we were you know, bringing cannabis to the table with community to say, what, what's meaningful here? And then talking to business and learning as business people to say, we really need to put the ROI in there. So, and the other thing is that when we threw these events, the people, these are the people we wanted to be with. You know, these were the dreamers and the folks that had aspirations and the people that had stories. We also did some work, you know, just gathering cannabis, doing good stories. And we're so moved by why people are doing what they're doing. And they weren't light, you know, they were, people's lives were saved and um, so many really passionate people, and those are the people we want to be around. And and we also have the opportunity to, you know, engage with consumers somewhat because we live in the world. And we knew that they couldn't find companies that cared about stuff. There wasn't any way for that to happen. And we really see that as an opportunity so that the influence of moving towards purpose, you know, we've got the, inv- the investment interest at the very high level, but consumers have so much power that they don't know about. So if we can make it 
clear, like what are the things that you're looking for? Racially equitable companies, companies that are responsible with our resources, companies that understand benefiting the community is you know critical and part of taking this narrative that's been really crappy, you know, really harmed people. And we didn't weaponize cannabis, but it was weaponized. So how do we figure out how to take this thing and build it into something where there's a story that we are incredibly proud of, that we've done better by the earth with hemp and cannabis, that we took care of people at a hyper-local level, that we understood where we came from and decided, you know, to make a go for it. And it's a new time, right? This, the racial reckoning for people, you know, it's a new time and that kind of consumer activation and corporate activation are coming together. And we see companies not really knowing, um, even when they want to do it, how to do it. So we feel like we fit kind of a space there to help move folks forward, not perfectly, but consistently. Yeah. So I I just want to add that when we were testing the market around this purpose-driven movement and throwing these events and we launched a Cannabis Doing Good Awards program to award companies in areas of racial justice and sustainability and community benefit, the end goal was actually to launch the Cannabis Doing Good Badge, which is what Kelly was talking about, which was a, um, a you know our geometric heart logo that would be plastered on storefronts, on packaging, um, and on websites so that consumers and vendors and even other business collaborators could identify purpose-driven companies. But in order to do that, what we realized is that while we were throwing these events and in some places like in Vegas and in New Orleans, like thousands of people are showing up. So we know that there is a deep desire for this purpose-driven community. Um, what we identified is that there was not a clear pathway for how to do this work. And so Cannabis Doing Good really evolved after testing the market and knowing the end goal was this Cannabis Doing Good badging system that was very consumer friendly, right? So in the same way that B Corp achieved or aimed to identify um, benefit corporations, we want to drive, uh, identify purpose-driven cannabis companies, but we wanted to include, you know, obviously racial justice, which B Corp doesn't, and we wanted it to be very consumer-facing. But in order to do that, we had to tell companies how to do good. So Cannabis Doing Good Now is really a platform to educate cannabis companies on the how of racial justice, on the how of the community engagement, on the how of sustainability. And so how we do that is we have an anti-racism trainings. We have a racial equity self-assessment that businesses can take to identify areas that they're doing well or maybe could use improvement in, like HR, marketing communications, community engagement, policy, company commitments, et cetera. We offer workshops and classes in these three key areas that we've been talking about. And the idea is that cannabis companies can come to Cannabis Doing Good They can participate in any one of our assessments or workshops or trainings. They can take the assessment, see how they're doing, um, and then go back and use all the resources that we've made available to improve how they're doing. And then once they have a, a, a good score, they'll be able to apply for the Cannabis Doing Good badge. And our goal is to release assessments every single year. So this year we're releasing the racial equity self-assessment. Next year it will be the community engagement self-assessment. And the year after that, maybe the sustainability self-assessment. And so this is really exciting for us because it's not really, you know, while, and I should mention, I want to throw in that one of the key things in addition to having all of these, these workshops and classes and this pathway of how we are launching a membership program so that people, 
people can come in, become part of the Cannabis Doing Good ecosystem, and then also access all of these workshops and classes and assessments at a free or discounted rate. But you don't have to be a member to participate or activate on all the things that we offer. So that is really the goal of Cannabis Doing Good. We want to teach companies how. And by the way, when we're talking about racial equity, keep in mind, 97% of this industry is white-owned. So our target audience for now really is those 97% of businesses that are white-owned who are looking around and saying, how do I influence racial justice? Well, we can tell you how. And then we're going to give you a badge so you can tell other people that you're doing the work, that you're committed to to undoing um, racism and that you're committed to a more equitable industry. What advice do you have for our listeners who might be interested in starting a values-driven, community-based type of organization similar to yours that is outside of traditional business model, where maybe the monetization strategy is a little more elusive or not quite as obvious um, as selling a product or a service. I, I know I have a lot of uh, community members in the Women Empowered in Cannabis community who want to start businesses that provide help in some way, but it can be a real struggle when you're trying to monetize doing good. How have you, the two of you dealt with that? Oh my gosh. That's the thing. We say there is no economic driver for good. Like it's really difficult, but actually if you, you know, dig into the way you're regulated as an operator, there's some stuff in there. That's what social equity is intended to do, right? To, to make repair and make more racially just, um, outcomes you using the policy but it's not sufficient businesses how you do that i mean it isn't brand new we know the values based businesses and they are out performing they're like peers like a costco compared to a sams but for your network for our network i mean we're part of women in this space we do care about stuff we really do and so the reason folks come up with businesses there's the purpose right and to be honestly, perfectly frank, we're, we're totally still working on the economic engine of it. We just can't stop because it is such an opportunity to do business in a way, in a new way, not, not the way that it's always been done, not extractive capitalism that doesn't care who fails, but how is it that we build a community and learn from one another? And we have a ton to learn. We're still learning, but you don't, you don't do it you know, I'll have my business and then I'll think about what I care about. It's what I care about. And is my business a vehicle to help help, help that help that happen? And then what are the metrics that you're going to use besides um, revenue? Not It's not like revenue doesn't matter, but what else are you looking at? And that there is a return on investment for having employees that want to work with you. There is a return on investment for from looking at what are the requirements and how can we do this in a way that's, you know, with our hearts. And I think just continuing to to network and learn from each other. And as women in the space, I mean, we have just so much room for growth, so much room for growth. So I don't think we know all of the ways, but um, I don't think we could do it any other way. Courtney, is there anything you want to add? I just want to say that I think people assume that that the ability to do good is a function of excess profit, excess profit. And so certainly there are you know, hundreds, if not thousands of startups and people running small businesses who look at their budgets month to month and say, I really want to do good, but I don't have a dime to spare. And what we say is to them is several things. Doing good is, you know, a function of time, talent and treasure. 
And so treasure being dollars, but time and talent are incredibly valuable. One of the things that, I mean, you must know this better than anyone Kara, but one of the things that we hear women businesses say all the time is they crave mentorship and business expertise and acumen on, right? And acumen on how. So as a small business owner, if you've gotten through the process of starting your business, you have so much experiential knowledge that you could share um, with a nonprofit, with a board, with a community member, with another business. Mentorship and, and the gift of time is crucial. And we know it's something that certainly people in this sector need. And we know people outside of this sector need. Um, in addition to volunteering time, right? So you're giving time for mentorship, you're giving expertise, you're offering any sort of bumps and bruises and, and learnings that you've had along the way, but also volunteering to support using your platform to magnify or amplify the work that a community partner is doing. That's a really good way that is usually free to the business, but means the world to a community partner who doesn't have access to the cannabis sector, who doesn't have access to the cannabis patient or consumer. So using your platform to elevate and amplify the things that are important to you is a really easy way to do this. Um, so I think that we just encourage businesses to sort of identify who they are, what they care about, find a community partner that you're, is willing to work with you, which by the way is still really hard, and then get in a conversation with them about what their highest area of needs are, and then go back and look at what resources you have available in, the, in terms of time and talent and maybe treasure. But if treasure's not available to you, it certainly shouldn't stop a business from doing good. Okay, so I've got a two-part question. I'm going to direct the first part to Kelly and the second part to Courtney. So Kelly, what are what is one of the biggest hurdles that are is facing um, uh, women and BIPOC communities in cannabis? So I want to hear what what is the biggest hurdle, and then I want to hear about something that we may be surprised to hear about that we didn't know that is actually impacting a lot of people, but it's not bubbling up in our conversation, in our communal conversation. And then Courtney, same thing, but I want to hear about what are the companies that you're talking to, that you're, you're urging to do more good? What is the biggest hurdle they have to overcome? And then what is something that you find frequently, but doesn't tend to bubble up in the conversation that, that we're really aware of? These are good and deep questions, Kira. The biggest barrier, I mean, I think we know the little barriers like access to capital and all of that, um, which is real. But the I would name that one of the big ones. Oh, absolutely. I'm to hear what you have to say. Oh, absolutely. But the reason that we have that financial markets were born, born off of, you know, extractive systems that held people down on purpose. And so of, of understanding what the, the anti-Black racism that came from us you know, the where we came from, that those same systems, because we're just fitting ourselves into existing systems without using our imaginations quite as big as we possibly could to say, what does an industry look, what does a sector look like that creates itself with the best that we have, not the same old crappy extractive models? What does it look like to have a business that isn't just like money, 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 money? Of course we want to make money, but not at the cost of not being able to live on earth. That doesn't sound good. Not at the cost of, you know, damaging communities beyond repair who've already carried the creation of the financial industry, the creation of the insurance industry. Why do you think you can afford those properties? Because they were redlined and all of the, you know, political power was crushed and removed from those communities. So I honestly think the bar biggest barrier is that we don't have our heads on straight that we forget where we came from, that we came from change-making and people trying to literally save their family members' lives, that we came from, um, 
you know, a history that there's parts of it that we should be really proud and parts of it that we really need to be critical in our examination. And I don't think we're going to, to use the promise of the space until we recognize that all oppressions connected and that, that the way, the reason women don't have the opportunities we have is because our, our economic model says that only a couple of us can win. And so all the others below us are, don't have value. And if we decide that ladder, that bullshit ladder, we don't want to play on it, then it stops working. And if we don't recognize that, we have every right to be banging on these doors and 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 creating, um, you know, a fierce force in us to say we have, we should have parity in this space. Women should have parity. People of color should have advantages to moving into the space based on the history of of cannabis, and really try to use this as a a, a way, a part of social change. I mean, that's what we're about. We actually truly believe that. Um, I just want to throw in one more thing because mm-hmm. we didn't really talk about the Cannabis Impact Fund, which was our effort to create that we created right after Mr. Floyd was killed because we are always seeking how do we make the right thing the easy thing? And, you know, racial justice isn't easy at all. But by creating this nonprofit with the help of Sensible Colorado, we can take donations from cannabis and contribute them directly to the movement for black lives, which is really about black joy and a right to living. You know, it's not about taking anything away from anyone else and color of change and the bail project, which we know why that's so necessary, right? Undoing these systems, making the right thing, the easy thing. We don't expect cannabis businesses to know all how to do that, but contribute to the fund. So we as a whole can do that. So I I know that was kind of a big picture answer to your question, but the biggest barrier is recognizing that all oppression is actually connected and all of the things, the access to capital, the lack of mentorship, the lack of people who have the economic standing to really be able to do the things that we're asking for. Those are all part of what we've crafted. So if we don't dig that and I don't, what are we going to do and how do we be really expansive in our thinking and use our businesses to be expressions of ourself, ourselves in the world and what we'd like to see in the world. And I know that's big, but it's not impossible. And I'm grateful to have a colleague um, who reminds me every day when I forget. Do you think that women are uncomfortable admitting that they suffer from oppression? I never hear women talk about it as a collective of women, acknowledging that there is oppression that is keeping us down. It's almost like we want to pretend like it doesn't exist. I don't think, you know, while intersectionality and while we've had a lot of education from Kimberly Crenshaw and others, I don't necessarily think women see themselves in that space. Although if you talk to women for a minute, you will certainly hear the ways been treated inequitably. Um, But I think that connection is incredibly important. And for white women in particular, you know, many of the gains we tried to make with affirmative action and other things like that benefited white women. They didn't benefit people of color. And so really critically examining our systems and figuring out how to do it and recognizing that if you are at the table complaining about how folks aren't at the table, what do you do to get other folks to the table, right? Your success isn't yours individually. And we, Black women um, in particular, have been really carrying the load politically for many, many years, for me, me too and beyond. For So it's time for women to come together, recognize that we absolutely have different power based on our positionality, our hair color, our class, and that that all was crafted and we all don't have equal opportunity. 
So we, we really do need to help provide that for each other. And I think it's white women's time, you know, to figure out how to be actively anti-racist because when we tackle anti-black racism, everybody benefits, women benefit because all oppression is connected. And that is the very basis of it in this country based on our history. Yeah. I sometimes wonder if that's really the, the disconnect that white women have with really providing support and empathy to people of color is this unwillingness to accept the fact that we are also oppressed, you know, that we're, we are experiencing a, a great deal of that oppression as well. And that we can use that to really empathize and support um, people of color in, in those communities. So, all right, Courtney. I'm sorry. Kara. I, I got to jump in one more time there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And white women have also been absolutely complicit and key lovers and players of holding up anti-racism. So yes, noting our oppression. Yes, noting that we have equal, you know, unequal opportunity to contribute, but taking it on and, you know, being willing to conflict in folks' families and recognizing that there is loss of sticking your neck out. There's always been loss and it's cost us our bodies. And so actually putting white bodies in front and saying this matters to all of us. Racism steals from all of us. and But our power to influence is different. And you may have to deal with the consequences, but um, we will gain if folks are willing to put themselves at risk. If we didn't learn anything from Christy Blasey Ford, you know, the top echelon of white woman, educated, of means, blonde, they crushed her. To think there's some level of protection for a woman, they will come after us if we don't stand together and we're not standing together and we haven't stood together, not in the women's work, you know, we just haven't. And so really recognizing that it is time to be bold and brave and imperfect and actively anti-racist. There is no passive anti-racism. If that's what you think you're doing, you're doing nothing. And so um, I think Courtney can expound on what it means to be an actively anti-racist white woman because she is one and it's not easy but it certainly moves us forward. Let me just say really quickly that I think one of the things that I've really, you know, in my own introspection as a white woman and learning more, I mean, you know, I've never called the cops on anyone. I've, I've, I, the things that I see white women doing today, I just, I don't understand it, but learning more about the history of racism in our country and how women and white women have become this, this pawn of power and oppression and if we nuzzle up to that power by uh, creating division, then then we're protected by it, right? If we're willing to be on the side of the white man and the oppressor and doing the bidding of the oppressor, then we get protection. But you're right. Someone like Christine Blasey Ford, who steps out and puts herself out there in a way that is calling out oppression, she gets crushed. So it's, you know, it's the way that the oppression works is by using the tools of division to get women, white women in particular, in that position where we can do their work without it being obvious that it's their work. And I, it, it just sickens me to see how many times white women step into that, that role. It's just, it's disgusting. And they don't realize how they're being so used. Right. Mm-hmm. We're all acting yeah. like pie doesn't have room for us. And yes. Pie. I can make pie. Courtney makes pie. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to say, I think that, um, right. What we really see is this intense fear of loss of power, 
loss of privilege because white women, like everyone else in the country, but to a, to a, maybe a lesser extent than BIPOC folks, but there is pressure to assimilate to white patriarchal culture. And in our, in our path of assimilation to sort of behaving and acting like white men in the workplace or acting like white men in our communities, we're also then understanding that we actually benefit from white supremacy. And we have subscri- we have now subscribed to perfection. So you have this history of assimilating as a way to be viewed as equal, which by and large gave us the benefit of white supremacy, which is the, the power that we still hold and the place that we still benefit from. And we subscribe to sort of this white supremacy framework that perfection is, is the only is the only pace of progress when the pace of progress is actually completely imperfect. Well, and I was saying that the, that perfection is defined by what white perfection sees as right. Absolutely. That right. is That's it. the standard of perfection. Absolutely. And so we're, we're afraid to lose our power. We're afraid to forego our privilege, even if we're unwilling to admit it. That is just the truth because, because behaving in this white supremacy framework has protected us but it's also caused irreparable harm for us. It has caused ongoing oppression, not only for us, but extraordinarily so for our BIPOC colleagues and neighbors and friends, right? And you look at who who turned out in record numbers to vote for Donald Trump, both times it was white women, both times it was white women. Um, so that's problematic and we, ha- we have to deal with that. So when you look at an industry that is, you know, 97% white owned, even though it's you know still to a much lesser extent women owned, we still have as white women we still have more power and privilege in this industry than our than the women of color in this space. And how do we how do we check our our privilege and use the power that we have to bring BIPOC voices to generate BIPOC wealth to create meaningful, impactful, long-lasting generational equity? for our BIPOC communities. That is the call that we have is white women in the space. And it's really hard. It's just not going to be easy, but we, ha- we have to do it. And it does, it does take action, not just a book club, not just a social media post. It takes actual action every single day and an incredible amount of humility and an incredible ability to look at yourself and say, I am okay with progress and I'm willing to forego perfection for the sake of saving black lives, black and brown lives. Yeah, and I think the thing that white women miss is that improving one community does not take away from another. It actually helps to improve every community across the board. Yeah, exactly. Life ends in a pie, right? That's white supremacy. Mm-hmm. That that resource, that power, that opportunity, that education, that food, that housing, that resource, it's all a pie. Um, and for you to have some means I have less. And that just isn't true. It's just not true. <laughs> so, um, but but we operate in that system every single day. So dismantling it is hard. It's hard work. Okay, so let's talk about the ideal then. If cannabis doing good achieves its goals, what does that look like? Paint the picture for me. And I'm 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 asking you this from the position of somebody who also leads a community. And there's a lot of fight going on. There's a lot of things that we are working very hard to change. 
And yet it feels like things never change. So when I, from my position, look at what is the ideal, what would it look like if women empowered in cannabis achieved these goals? I honestly cannot even picture a world where we have achieved our goals. So what does that look like to you? How is it going to shape and change the industry if the things that you are trying to do are accomplished? What do we have to look forward to? Such a good question. I want Kelly to take a stab at it. And of course I'll chime in, but such a good question. I mean, we use our power to support what we would like to see. And we, we stick together so that we can use our imaginations. We are, we're, we're, we're shopping with businesses that are using their resources well. We are not allowing companies to go into indigenous areas and sucking, suck up all the water. Like we are conscious about what the potential that we have is and they're really using it. Right. So there's a whole community of folks that are purpose driven that aren't calling each other out for sucking, but calling each other in to do better, that we're networking, that we can look at our supply chains and say, those are the folks in perfect doing it, working to um, engage with businesses that don't have the platforms that we're building each other up. Then we look at who's successful. We don't look at it just because of the number one vape pen producer in the world, we look at it, uh, you know, what does their C-suite look like? Who are they mentoring? What is their plan and pathway to bring people into the fold? We are not crafting ourselves after every other industry that doesn't care what happens to the planet, that doesn't care what happens in community, that doesn't care if women or folks of color have opportunities. And we're not stopping until we get there because while that's all really difficult, what else is worth doing? I mean, if I'm not working on racial justice and, and taking care of the planet, and taking care of people. I mean, I have no, no, no purpose that that's it. That's what matters. And do we want to be sustainable and, you know, economically viable by doing good? Absolutely. Do we need to make 500 times our, you know, lowest level employee? No. Can we be leaders that are collaborative, that aren't upholding patriarchal structures when we know they don't work and they hurt all of us? We've seen people who we look at as very, very, very successful in our space. And they're, they're not here anymore because the old ways aren't working. It hurts everyone. It doesn't matter what you look like. What does it feel like? Are you making a difference with your work and with your life? Are you learning from others and inspiring others? And frankly, are you spending your dollars in cannabis places that reflect your values? Are you not just operating with the existing structures? You're constantly moving policy, criminal legal policy, looking at housing policy and the way it connects to cannabis and the industrial prison complex, like really seeing all the power that we have to craft ourselves and not, not letting it crush you just a little bit, just a little bit every day. Courtney, what do you want to say? Yeah, I think, I think all of that. And for me, when cannabis doing good is successful, when our ideal is met, the picture is, simple, although the path to get there may have been complicated. And that is that we have a highly educated, activated consumer and patient base that supports BIPOC, women-owned, sustainably run, community-engaged, racially just businesses. And by way of that, we have an entire business sector that is no longer dominated by um, or driven by traditional extractive capitalism and by white supremacy, but rather what we see is businesses succeeding everywhere that are small, that are craft, that are engaged, and maybe they're, maybe they're multi-state, 
but what they're doing is redistributing their resources so that others can enter the space and so that the planet is cared for and so that there's more people of color in our sector. So when we are successful, when our ideal is met, we really see like a doing good ecosystem, a purpose-driven ecosystem of consumers and patients, patients and businesses that are all holding each other accountable without calling each other out, but rather calling each other in to how to do better, because when we know better, we'll do better. And these aren't just our ideas. You know, that, that's what the ESG goals are talking about at a high level. That's what the UN sustainability goals are talking about at the high level. What are the social impacts? What are the environmental environmental impacts? What does your leadership look like? So these aren't just our ideas. We know purpose-driven companies do better. What we don't have is like a lot of cannabis-specific data. So we, it's not, while we, these, this is from our heart, these are, this is also where ROIs come from. So we see, you know, a lot of brands doing well, and a lot of people doing well, doing the right thing. And that, that's our, our effort. Um, that's our, what we'd like to see in the space. I really like what you said, Courtney, about small business, because I think, you know, going back to this concept of perfection, that we hold this ideal that in order to be a successful business, you have to have a C-suite. You have to be making a million something a year. You have to think about an exit strategy and being an MSO. But the truth is that that's not the only ideal of perfection and success. Success can be having a small family-run business that pays its employees well and gives them vacation pay and is stable and good to the community. I mean, there, there are so many different definitions and ways of looking at a successful business that to hold this one perfect ideal creates a lot of failure and failed purpose. So I really appreciate what you do or what you two are doing to redefine that. And we'd argue at the top of those spaces, whatever that ideal is, they're not doing awesome. Only some of them are. I agree. Yeah, that's very true. What what are the lives? How would we like to live? What is, what is this time taught us? What is the racial awakening? What people are talking about things that really matter? What was it like to be in your home without being able to go anywhere? Who are you grieving? Like, what kind of lives do we want to live? We've got this raw material in front of us, but we haven't really crafted what is that ideal. And that is what Courtney and I are seeking to do. You know, a set of values that we don't know if they're the perfect values, but we care about stuff. We want to make a difference with our work, and and that's why we you know get up and do it every day. And for us, it it, it you know you think about leaving like six years in, and there's no way you can mm. because people whose hearts we connect with and whose brains are stimulating, and people who are just you know really trying to do something amazing. And there's something about the plant you know that pulls mm-hmm. those together. So let's just not lose who we are. And this is a woman thing. It's a woman plant. You know, it's like yeah. This is the earth. That's what it's a woman. That's what we are. So how do we care for each other and learn in these changing times and craft really the communities and the businesses that we'd like to to live like and be a part of? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that when you see more women and more BIPOC folks running businesses, you will inherently see a shift in business culture. Because my priority as a as a business owner and as a mom and as a as a partner to my husband and, and, uh, you know, a central cornerstone of my friend group and my community is 
is not to be working 80 hour weeks mm. and not and not to be taking fancy vacations on a yacht. Although what I want to do is at some time in my life, sure. <laughs> but it's not the goal, right? The goal is like you said, Kara, it's really to have, I want a successful business that's meaningfully impacting community and that my legacy is actually that I was able to still be a completely active mom and a giving wife and a, and a, treasured community member while also running my business. I don't want to, to have passed away. And the only thing that anyone can speak to is my work. That is not what I want to define my, to define me. Right. Yep. So I, I hope, I hope that we see that. I hope that we see when we see more women and BIPOC folks in, in leadership and owning businesses that we see a shift in work culture that allows for a better work-life balance. And people talk about it all the time. But I mean, we really mean it. And Kelly and I try to practice it even in our business. Like, how do we still maintain our life, our personal lives while running our business? And it is really hard because we're keeping up with a system that just doesn't support that generally. I agree. Hopefully COVID has changed some of those things for us. I completely agree with you. Ladies, I could talk to you all day. Um, unfortunately, we do have to bring this to a close. So before we say goodbye, please tell us where women can reach you if they're interested in connecting with you personally or finding out about cannabis doing good. Yes, absolutely. So um, good news is, is our cannabis doing good website is in the process of a relaunch because all websites need a reboot, but we are rebooting our services and rebooting our community. So in the next few weeks, you'll see a brand new site at cannabisdoinggood.com. The current website is still up and live. So you can go to it. You can see the events and the awards and the campaigns that we've done, but know that that is changing very soon. You can also go to cannabisimpactfund.org to check out our nonprofit arm. Um, if you're looking for an easy way to support racial justice. And if you want to get in, Kelly, in touch with Kelly and I personally, we can be reached at Courtney, you know, traditional spelling, Courtney at kindcolorado.org and Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y at kindcolorado.org. Um, and yeah, we are always looking for fellow collaborators, especially women in the space who we know are purpose-driven, who hold up the same values and ideals as us. So we're we're always sort of looking for our co-conspirators and friends in the space. So we welcome anyone to reach out to us anytime. We're very accessible. And we tend to kind of get it as women. Mm-hmm. So it's, we're grateful for that. Well, and we're looking forward to um, collaborating with you through Women Empowered in Cannabis as well. I know that Jennifer's actively working on bringing you two into the fold. So I'm really looking forward to a collaboration going forward. Us too. Thank you so much. Yes, it's going to be so fun. We love being in this. We say we want to be a bright star in the constellation of stars. And so we're looking forward to building out this constellation with you. So thank you so much for having us on today and for continuing to, you know, empower women in this space, because that is where change will happen. Well, thank you so much, Kelly and Courtney, for your time and for sharing your journey with us today. Ladies, thank you for tuning in. If you haven't yet joined the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, go to our brand new membership portal at womenempoweredincannabis.com. There you'll find lots of information on our new memberships for women working in cannabis. You can also find us on Clubhouse as WEIC, where we host AMA rooms with investors and recruiters and monthly open mics to introduce yourself to the community. WEIC is a community that provides resources, connections, events, and content to women working in cannabis in the U.S., Canada, and around the world where there's an interest in cannabis legalization. We welcome women who are currently working in cannabis 
or curious about taking a leap into the industry. Consider becoming a supporting member or supporting business for benefits and access across the network. Join us again soon for another conversation with women leading in cannabis. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one token at a time.